Welcome to Key Exchanges in the 901 Podcast. It's the podcast where we share the real stories of the real estate community here in Memphis. These are the stories that help every key change hands, the stories that are shaping the real estate market in our city. I'm Dane Williams, your key connection for home insurance, and I'll be your host today. And we're recording today's show in our studios that are powered by the Jason Woods Home Loan Team and Sophie Sandlin Reigns. Both of them are amazing loan officers with Community Mortgage. And I am fired up about today's show. Now, there's some weeks when I just know that I'm sitting across the table and, and we're getting ready to get rolling. I know that the energy is good. It's going to be a good one today. And I'm, I'm feeling, okay, tons of great energy, tons of great information coming today and excited to share more key exchanges with you on the show. Before I introduce our first guest, though, I want to take a second to tell you about one of our featured partners this week. One of our featured partners this week is Memphis Title Company. At Memphis Title Company, they have been serving the Memphis area since 1995. And there is an entire team of rock star attorneys, and any of them would be more than happy to assist with your next closing. Whether it's the purchase or sale of residential or commercial property, title examinations or opinions, resolving complex title issues, or any number of other scenarios that may come up over the course of your next transaction. They have an array of experience when working with buyers, sellers, builders, developers, investors, and lenders across all of Tennessee and Mississippi. They also have two convenient locations for your closing needs. Their first location is in Germantown. It's in the Saddle Creek area, but their newest location is conveniently located downtown on South Front Street. If you'd like to reach any of their attorneys, you can call their office at 901-754-2080 or visit their website at memphistitleco.com. That's memphistitleco.com. Memphis Title really does a fantastic job. And they are a company that I'm proud to have as a featured partner on Key Exchanges in the 901. My first guest, well, my first guest is a genuinely impressive human being. His charisma and his charming personality, they are infectious in any room that he enters. He's just a little over a year into the business at this point, and he's already sitting here in our studio having this conversation. And that tells you how highly I think of him. Uh, he's a lifelong Memphian, aside from stretches in Tuscaloosa and Lexington for college. But before he eventually made his way back home to the Bluff City, right, where he lives with his boyfriend, Tyler. Uh, he is the affiliate broker. Or he's a affiliate broker with the firm. He's a downtown resident. He's someone that I swore I'd never take a picture standing next to after seeing him shirtless on the cover of Memphis Health and Fitness magazine. So he's a new friend in my life and someone I'm excited to introduce many of you to today. Without any further ado, it is my profound honor and great privilege to welcome Mr. Peterson Welford onto Key Exchanges in the 901. Thanks for coming on the show, Peterson. Thank you so much, Jane. I'm excited to be here. And uh, excited to, uh, to get into this conversation. I start off every interview the same way, though. I got to figure out how the heck did we get here? So I need you to hop in the Wayback Machine, but it's, it's not too way back for you, right? We're, <laughs> we're going a little over a year ago and figuring out how did you get into real estate? Yeah, absolutely. I had been full-time in the fitness world here in Memphis for a little over six years. And about a year ago, well, I guess a year and a half ago, I started looking to add something different into my mix found real estate and hopped right in. And was uh, the intent to leave fitness at that point? Or was it just like, I'd like to have something different. I'm not sure. The intent will never be to leave fitness, but the intent was definitely to add something bigger. Okay. Yeah. And off and around it, you are a lifelong Memphian. This has been, been home for you pretty much aside from college. What was life like growing up for you? Well, life was honestly fun. I lived with my parents, my brother. We always had at least one dog. Most of the time it was two or three dogs. Uh, Went to PDS, then went to MUS. Um, Was a competitive swimmer from age six to 19. Uh, And then I went off to college and 
that was that. Off and running ever since. Uh, you guys still a close family? Something where is everybody's still here in town? You guys see each other all the time? So what's funny about that is my brother and I, for the longest time, said that we were not going to be Memphians anymore. We <laughs> went to college, said we're not coming back. We're not doing this. We want to go elsewhere, wherever that may be. Yeah. Um, and then, so my parents began to start to plan for retirement and they built a house at the beach. <laughs> and right around that time, my brother and I both said, oh, we're going to stay here. And so that's funny. they now live at the beach and we still live here. That's why, hey, that's a convenient thing for you to have a beach, ha beach it, house that you can go to all the time, right? It is pretty nice. We are, we're going there in about a month. That's awesome. You mentioned being a competitive swimmer all throughout high school at MUS and you went off to Alabama. You were then at University of Kentucky for your master's in healthcare administration. It's not uncommon for me to have realtors that I'm interviewing. They've, they're living a life that's different from what they planned, right? Maybe drastically differently before entering the industry. It seems like you were fairly well locked in though. I mean, going and getting your master's, you're doing all this stuff in fitness as well. Some sort of health related career was where you were going to be. It was something that I guess, turned you off of these aspirations or were you just really pulled towards real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I started in the healthcare field. Uh, I said for many years that I, my goal was I wanted to run a hospital. That was, yeah, I, you could have asked me, I would have told you every day, probably for six or seven years. I really? said those words uh, from sophomore year of college on. Mm. And I ended up Finished undergrad, dove into healthcare a little bit, worked at St. Jude actually for a year. That's cool. Uh, and then I went and got my master's. And while I was getting my master's, I got the chance to work in a bunch of different areas. And I worked in four different hospitals, both all through graduate school and then after graduate school. And the main reason that I loved the idea of healthcare, wanted to be in healthcare was patient experience. I wanted the patient experience to be great. I wanted the patient care to be top notch. And I knew that was something in this country that we needed people to be champions for. Mm -hmm. But I quickly, facility after facility, St. Jude is not included in this. Uh, they're just a little different than everybody else. Sure. Uh, but everywhere else, their bottom line is where can we cut the costs? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, a lot of those costs are cut at the expense of the patient. And I honestly got burned out of having the hard conversation of, but why are we doing it this way when the patient X, Y, Z, you know, it, I just did not feel that it was for me in the long run. I felt like it was going to be an uphill battle that I was never going to win. And, uh, I jumped right out and dove into fitness. Yeah. And off and running. Is that, uh, a transition that uh, as you were making it, your parents going, all right, hey, you got this master's, you got this thing, and you're doing what now? How was that conversation? You know, my parents are really awesome in that they know to expect that I sometimes will just leap. Yeah. Um, and I've always kind of been that type of person, but they also... My dad is the type of person that won't question it in a way that makes me question it, but he will have questions. Mm -hmm. For a little while, he did ask, like, do you want to go back and you spent all this money and, yeah. you know, you did all this schoolwork and you spent all this time investing in your future and what you said was healthcare, And now you are not doing that. Mm -hmm. What what do you want to do? And, you know, I I fell in love with 
Boutique Fitness. It just, it was an easy, it was a quick and easy love and it was fun and you get to help people. And there's also a challenge when you're the manager of like, how many members do we have? How can we grow? How can we expand? How can we, you know, how, how can we be better than we are? How can we be the best in Memphis? Yeah. Well, so like just what you're talking about there, I mean, you've got six and a half years where you were working full time in fitness, really diving in there, even with the educational background that was not that right. You opened and ran a whole bunch of gyms across the city doing different uh, specialties for yeah. depending on the gym that you were doing. Do you feel that your time that you had in that fitness space has had a, an impact on your real estate practice? Absolutely. Because especially with the number of places I've worked in four different gyms in Memphis, all locally owned. I've met so many people. I mean, when we opened the Midtown studio, for example, for cycle bar, we, within the first three months had almost 500 members, then COVID hit. And so that changed things a little bit, but my community and my connection base has been so wonderful for real estate because of who I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know and, and forming those relationships. I mean, that has definitely been a big part of where I am now with real estate. What were all the gyms that you opened? Because I, Boutique Fitness One, I, I'm not spending a whole lot of time inside of any yeah. gym, so I, I'm not fully aware <laughs> of what you're talking about. But uh, like, So, Boutique Fitness, think of like specialized things. Like Orange Theory, for example, they offer one format of workout, but their coaching level is so specialized and high. Cycle Bar, Pure Bar, Higher Memphis, Shed Fitness, Shred 415, okay. uh, Base Camp right down the street. Things like that where it's a specialized workout, that's boutique fitness. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. You uh, you also, I've heard you give credit to your Memphis roots as being a major contributing factor to your success thus far in the business. How have you managed to engage these relationships that you've either developed through fitness or just from being here and growing up and like, I, I don't know, but the eighth grade with this guy. So I'm calling yeah. on him kind of deal. How have you managed to take that and allow it to bear fruit in your real estate practice? You know, it Memphis loves a local cause or a local anything. We, I feel as a community, we love to work with people who know this place, love this place, want this place to be better and better as we move along. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that has been a major a major part of, of my success. You know, I, I have a client right now actually who I, I don't know him that well, but we went to uh, high school together and yeah. he messaged me out of the blue and said, Hey, I see you're doing this now. I'd love to support you. Will you sell my house? That's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's initially, was it just a matter of like, all right, I'm going to just tell people I'm doing this now and, and see how it works. Or is it something where you kind of had some strategic things that you were doing to, um, make that a part of your, your practice? Was it like, I'm, I'm doing calls or I'm going to call everybody I know, anybody's yeah. on my phone. Just tell them, Hey, it's what I'm doing now. Yeah. So when I first started, it was a big, I didn't call everybody, but I sent out plenty of text messages. I made sure I was on social media doing my thing. Like, Hey, I'm here and I am now transitioning into this real estate world. And if you need help, I'd love to just talk to you. Mm -hmm. I never, I tried not to make it a, Hey, I want to be your agent. Hey, I want to be your agent type of thing. I like to think of it more as an interview for the job rather than a, Hey, just pick me, choose me, love me, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. No, that's, I think that's great. One of the things that 
that struck me about you early on was that you were just tenacious with consistently putting out engaging and entertaining social media content. Uh, is that something do you have experience in doing that? Because you're really good at it. And it's like, you don't have a marketing background. You don't have any of this. So like, where did that come from? So boutique fitness, typically the instructors get paid based on how many people are in their class. So it pays to market yourself. Well, so when I first started teaching at Cycle Bar is where I first began, I started posting all the time, but then I quickly realized, how can I do this in a way that's not annoying and people aren't going to hit that unfollow button Yeah, and how they'll still keep following me and then maybe potentially come take a class, bring their friends to class, tell their friends to come to class, whatever it is. So I started getting creative in that field. I also genuinely am one of those people who just love social media. I think yeah. you can have fun with it. And that is why I love it. Um, but yeah, that, so fitness is how I really dove into that. Well, how do you make that? Cause it's, it's a bike that doesn't move and you, you're riding it. Like I mean, how many different ways can you find to make that exciting? What it's were you all, doing? It's all about building community. Yeah. So your community is everything. So snap in pictures after class. It doesn't have to technically be a promotional photo. You know, you can just say, Hey, let's take a group picture. Hey, it's so-and-so's birthday. I brought them a balloon. Let's take a picture. You know, anything that just makes people look like if you, if you look like you're having a good time on social media, no matter what it is that you're doing, people typically respond to that infectious energy. Mm -hmm. It's, it's something that people love to see. People don't really go on social media to see something negative. In fact, most people don't post anything negative. So if you even just, if I even just take a selfie in front of the bike and just say, hope you're having a great day. Yeah. That is content that reminds them, Hey, I'm still on the bike. You should come see me soon. Well, and, and it's something where I remember seeing on social media, whenever you had changed gems recently, or you had made some sort of move, everyone was posting about, oh, it's this the last ride with Peterson, right? Like this, yeah. this is a whole thing. And it felt like there was that community that you were talking about. And I, I have never done any of these classes ever, but I'm like, oh man, he's, that's sad. Like what's happening? It's like, I, I don't really know this guy. Why am I invested? I have chills like hearing you say that, uh, so, you know, cycle bar, for me, especially, I keep talking about cycle bar. That's the main one. The, the rest of them are awesome, but that's always been the main one that I've worked at in the past. Uh, I'm no longer there, but I was there for so long and I, I was the manager for so long. And I, uh, pre COVID post COVID during COVID, uh, we were actually the first studio to open nationwide from COVID. So our community and everything there, it's just, it's very strong. It's very wonderful. Yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. But you do a, a great job of blending quality real estate content with also giving people a peek inside of what real life is like for you. Right. Uh, we had had maybe two brief conversations before we got to here today, just in passing, but I, I could have told you that like, no, no, he gets donuts on Sunday. That's something I know <laughs> just from social media. You let people know this is a part of my routine. How much of your social media content is intentionally planned versus this is just me capturing what's happening in my daily life. Yeah. So I used to plan content. I, I actually also help run their three other local businesses that I help plan their content for them. I don't like to plan my personal content. I have found it comes off as ingenuine. It feels too forced. And I got to the point where I felt like I was making it for the wrong reasons rather than 
getting back into, I love social media because it's fun, not because I feel like I have to do it. Mm-hmm. So like a year and a half ago, I was planning it all out. And about six months into that, I said, let's stop doing this. Like if I have something to post, then great. Or if I see a TikTok that I want to remake as my own, great, I'll do it. Yeah. But otherwise it's not genuine. I'd rather give people something fun and real in real time than, you know, something that's planned and in a spreadsheet. Well, in my head, that's something that's unique to you though. Like, I, I don't know that everyone has that ability to just be creative on the fly like that. They're almost has to be some system in place to, to have the discipline 100%. to stick with it too. Cause you got the discipline that, that goes with that also. <laughs> so um, I, I do think that is a, a unique thing about you. Um, a, a lot of your business now, it seems to be kind of centered in the heart of the city. Uh, you, you, you'll sell all over. I know you'll Carville, Germantown, wherever you, you'll make it happen, but it seems like the bulk of your business, we're, we're East Memphis, we're Midtown, we're downtown. This, these are the places where you're doing most of your deals anyways. Uh, why do you think your business naturally grav- gravitated towards those areas as opposed to some of these other areas that are doing really well in the city? Yeah, absolutely. So I, being from Memphis, born and raised, I was raised in East Memphis. Uh, my grandparents were in Midtown and we spent, a, we spent a lot of my childhood in Midtown. Um, and now when I got back from college, I lived in Midtown for a while and, uh, I now live downtown. I've been to downtown almost three years now. Mm. So I, I, my community and my connections mostly are in those areas. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of people from those areas moving out to Germantown and Carville, and I have definitely helped some of those people. Uh, but I think I think that my my bread and butter is definitely in the heart of the city. Sure, for sure. We had a uh, interesting conversation earlier because we were discussing some of the similarities and differences in our business. I'm talking about clients interviewing multiple agents for the job. Uh, something you know, do we see it on the insurance side of things? And I know that's uh, not uncommon for you on the agent side of things. So. Uh, is that something where you know frequently that all right, this client's interviewing multiple agents? This is a, a, a thing that's going to be happening, generally speaking, as you're going into it? Or is it oftentimes, I don't know, I may be the only conversation they're going to have. So I have learned, and I have learned the hard way, don't ever make an assumption. Mm. If you are asked to come talk to someone about their property, go into it thinking they are talking to five other people. Yeah. Now, you may get there and they may say, we already know that we want to work with you. Just tell us how it works. And in that case, like that's awesome. And that's super humbling, but I have definitely gone into one before where I was kind of cocky because of the way that I thought that they had communicated with me was, Oh, I already had the job mm-hmm. and uh, I did not have the job and I did not get the job yeah. actually. Um, it was a friend of a friend of a friend. It was a very distant connection and you know, they, they shouldn't have chosen me in that, mm-hmm. in that instance. I, I did not put my best foot forward there. I went into it thinking that I was just going to go in and say, okay, here's our plan. Let's go. And they were interviewing me and I had not prepared. Yeah. It's something to where we don't see that near as much on the insurance side of things. We, we have people that will get quotes and they're getting it from different places and that's kind of the same, but Having the value of the agent, I think, is important. I had a, a client that's they're coming back to us now. They were with us for a while. They moved to a house where the rates were just more competitive with somewhere else. And then they had a bad claim experience. Mm. And now they're wanting to come back because yeah. the experience that we provide is just, it, it's different here. Um, and it's something where I don't feel like many people on, on my side of the business 
really do a good job of saying like, all right, do it. Do I have that connection with the insurance agent, which is very different on, on the real estate side of things, which is it's unique because our transaction doesn't end. Like I'm still your agent at the end of it too, which right. is, it's an odd thing. Um, want to change gears here a bit though. Talk more about you as a person. Uh, did you ever have any interesting uh, past jobs or side hustles along the way? So I was the aquatics director and the head coach for the university club swim team. How about that? Uh, for 10 summers. How about that? Yeah. So it's like uh, all the swim meets and what happened around town. Like you're the ones kind of building the team out and getting everybody. So uh, I, we, back in the day, we used to call it country club league. Now it's called the Memphis summer swim league. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, one. So I grew up, we, when I was little, we grew up going to the university club. We were members there. And then as I got older, we kind of let that go as we didn't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh one summer, gosh, I had probably just turned 15 or 16 and we, I went with some friends to the pool and I, the pool was trash. It was green. It was not clean. The lifeguards were not doing their job. And, uh, I was a lifeguard somewhere else and I looked around and that place has a lot of sentimental value for me. And I left and I, I, they had just gotten a new manager of the club, like the whole club. Mm -hmm. And I emailed him and I said, Hey, I don't know who runs the pool, but I would like to interview for the job next year. And here's why I think I could do a better job. And I was 16 years old. Yeah. And he emailed me back. He said, I don't need you to tell me you can do a better job. I I guarantee you, you can do a better job (laughs) than what I've got. You're hired. And, um, so that was in like September. Well, the the pool obviously was closed. Sure. Uh, so in February, he called me. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a shot and I'm going to give you a big shot. You build your team. You're in charge of everything outdoors by the pool. You need to hire You're all 16. The, I was 16. Oh my goodness. Uh, and yeah, I ended up doing that for 10, 10 summers in a row. The first oh, summer God. I took over the swim team, we lost every single uh. meet. And uh, by my third summer, we won city meet. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So it was, and and honestly, I I joke that will be the best job I've I've ever had. That was some. We had so much fun at that job. That's, what is the swimming community like in Because that's just not something I, I was ever a part of. Is, is it a it's very def- vibrant community? Is there a lot? Or not a lot. It's getting smaller. Really, it's been dwindling for a while now. I think I I don't see it getting bigger. I see it getting smaller. What? So. It, are they, I feel like at the University of Memphis, they were going to build some big swim complex. There was like so something they, they talked about. They right? were. They they uh, instead demolished the, oh, oh the outdoor pool. It no longer exists. Oh, God. Well, that's uh, um, happy times I'm and, bringing up here. Uh, they still have an indoor pool, and there is a competitive team that swims there still, but it's not, not it's, what it was going to be. It's not what it was going to be. Ooh, that's trying to bring up happy times for you. There. <laughs> that's right. what, uh, what are you into when you're not selling real estate? Ooh. Well, as you have spoken about so much, when I'm not doing real estate, I'm teaching fitness. So when I take time for myself, honestly, like I love to travel. I yeah. loved, I love to travel. You give me a new spot to go. I want to go. Where, where have you been recently? It's been fun. Most recently I have been to the beach, but in two weeks I'm going to Disney world. That's fun. Yeah. yeah it'll be a good time. Uh, anything interesting you're watching on TV right now? Uh, Tyler and I are watching Ted Lasso right now. That's so great. That yeah. Ted Lasso is awesome. That's yeah. We've different. only got like two or three episodes left. We're oh, kind of sad about that's it. That's super sad. Like when you get to the <laughs> end and you're like, when are they making more? Why is it uh-huh. taking forever? Yes. No, that's a uh, great show. I was Ted Lasso for Halloween last year. So. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. 
Uh, fast food guilty pleasure? You don't seem like one that's eating a lot of fast food, just judging a book <laughs> Ooh, by its cover. Nope. I will shock you. I love a tray from Cookout. What? Yeah. It's like a lot of food. I've, I, and Double I, hamburger, hush puppies, quesadilla, and a peanut butter fudge milkshake. You got to do the, all this, the fitness classes, man. You were just like <laughs> killing it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, first concert you attended? John Merritt, Mud Island. Okay. That's a good time. But no, John Mayer's a great first guy. Like, uh, yeah. Absolutely. That's fine. I, I, sometimes I ask that question and I get somebody that's got uh, like, oh man, I'm sorry you're like stuck with that for forever. <laughs> but that's um, most awkward thing that happens to you on a regular basis. Uh, well, when I do go to cookout. <laughs> <laughs> Second cookout answer. This is the best. When I do go to cookout or any drive through for pretty much anywhere, uh, they will say, thank you, ma'am at the oh. end of it through the speaker box got a higher voice. <laughs> and then I will get to the window and they, they will be so awkward when I get That's to the window funny. and they will apologize typically in like the worst way. That's funny. It, you know, at this point it makes me laugh. That's super funny though. Super funny. Uh, something weird that you recommend everyone try at least once. Skydiving. Really? Yeah. Have you done it multiple times? Is it just like a one-time deal? I've only you? done it once. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to pass it I on. also set the bar high for myself. I don't think I'll be able to do it again because I did it in Hawaii. <sighs> and so like when you're falling, it's like you see the island, but like it's just gorgeous, insanely beautiful. So I, I, yeah. I can't go anywhere else and do it no, again. Yeah. So I think it will be a one-time thing. You can't go do it in Millington and be like, oh, cool. There's trees. Right. Yeah, here we are. Right. It's, it's a different animal uh, for sure. Uh, favorite Memphis date night restaurant? Oh, Catherine and Mary's. Easy. No hesitation. No man. hesitation. I, I, so Andrew Michael, they do a phenomenal job. Catherine Mary's is one that you get like, all right, I'm bought in right off the bat. Somebody's like, your Catherine and Mary's people are, are hardcore. Oh, no hesitation. Yes. And they know me in there. Okay. So, they, <laughs> so it's not just because- I was there last night. <laughs> if It's not just because you're a downtowner. That's your spot always. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Uh, wrapping up here, we'll grab a couple more. Are you superstitious at all? No, I wouldn't say I'm superstitious. I'm definitely into uh, astrology, though. I'm an Aquarius. Really? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Last question. If people want to get in touch with you to discuss buying or selling property, how can they do that? Yeah. Uh, they can DM me on Instagram at P. Welford, or they can call me or email me. Yeah. We'll make sure we've got all of his contact information in the show notes for this episode. Peterson, I, I appreciate your time. And I had a blast. I thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Guys, we're not done just yet. Up next, there's even more key exchanges coming your way as we're telling the stories of the real estate community in our city. You're listening to Key Exchanges in the 901. Black Tie Moving is one of our featured partners this week, and they are one of the most trusted moving companies in the entire country for moves that may need a luxury moving experience at a price you can afford. I'm telling you, there's a reason that Black Tie Moving is one of the fastest growing private companies in the entire nation and why they've earned the trust of some of today's biggest celebrities, musicians, and professional athletes. Simply put, their goal is to exceed the expectations of your clients, any that they may have for their next moving experience. One of the things many people don't know about Black Tie Moving is that they also offer flexible storage options for those clients that may be in between houses for a few days or even a few months. Also, they've recently announced Black Tie Moving's Agent Advantage program, which helps strengthen their partnerships with their referring real estate agent partners. When you sign up for this program at no cost to you, then you're going to have access to VIP moving teams during the entire process, preferential scheduling treatment, 
and even the opportunity to put some money back into your pocket just for making the introduction to Black Tie. To sign up for the Agent Advantage program or to help your clients schedule their next move, you can reach out to Scott Kalk, their business development director, by calling or texting his cell phone directly at 901-218-5358 or by hitting them up on their social media accounts by searching for Black Tie Moving Memphis. They are a phenomenal moving company, and they're someone that I am incredibly proud to have as a featured partner on Key Exchanges in the 901. And we are back, back in our studio where we are powered by the Jason Woods Home Loan Team and Sophie Sandlin Reigns, both of them phenomenal loan officers with Community Mortgage. In our next segment, well, it's one of the sexier topics to talk about in our industry because oftentimes when you, you raise the price point on homes, you get to see some really special properties at the same time. Our topic for this segment is luxury real estate. And with that in mind, I cannot think of two better guests to have back on than my friends, Mr. Josh Spots from The Best Spots and Mr. James Harvey Jr. from Keller Williams. Guys, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you. Thank you. And if you'd like more information about either of these two upstanding gentlemen, then you can check out their original key exchange from season one. For Josh, you'll go back to episode 38. And for James, he was on episode 45. Uh, Josh, let's let's get into it here, though. Um, well, I, I know you guys are willing to sell any type of property that exists at this point, right? Uh, if it, it's not something you're going to limit yourself to only selling luxury properties. Uh, the two of you are, are more synonymous with luxury than, than some other folks, just because you're in that space so much and you guys sell so much of it. How did you find yourself working in that space? You know, I kind of started out um, focusing on the people that I knew and that were in my daily realm, right? Like just uh, my sphere of influence, right? Like the people that I went to meetings with or was on a board with or anything along those lines. Right. And so that just kind of morphed into these are the people that I'm around. This is the market that I'm in and this is how it, it, it works. I also did a um, tremendous amount of volunteering with one of the local um, hospitals and um, through that became involved in that organization and um, was able to assist a number of their incoming hires and things along those lines. Um, so I think it's kind of where you put yourself. Sure. James, same question. You. How is it that you found yourself working in luxury real estate so much? Uh, similar to Josh. Um, like I tell people a lot of times, luxury finds you. And kind of what Josh was saying, it was, it was organic. You know, my background was sports. So it was a lot easier for me to relate to athletes. You know, I know how they feel. I know their routine. I know what they like. I know all the nuances that goes into being a high-profile athlete and all the things that, you know, while they're out playing, other people are taking care of in the background for them. And, you know, one of the things for me, again, going back to my start was athletics, and that was the door that led to other types of clients in the luxury realm. But the most part, I knew athletes. I'm a, I'm a former athlete. So that was natural to who I was. Yeah. And that makes all the sense in the world that if you're in that space, eventually you're going to start getting referrals to their neighbors and to other people that right. are in there and just eventually it's a snowball, right? Right. Um, Josh, I'm curious because there's, there's not a special school that you can go to that's going to teach you luxury real estate stuff. You said like, all right, now the sudden you've got these new docs that are helping, you know, wanting you to help them find a new house. But 
it's not just innate that everyone knows some of the nuances that come with luxury real estate, things to look for, things to not look for. How was it that you acquired that knowledge that's allowed you to become such a staple in this space? Um, I think it's kind of the way that I've always lived, right? Like it, I've been drawn to how do you how do you carry yourself in a manner that is respectable and that has some refinement about it, right? And so I think that there's this this assumption that for luxury real estate or luxury anything, right, you've kind of got to be stuffy and like hateful to people and all these things. Like that is not that's not how I am on a daily basis. And anybody that knows me well knows that like I may show up in shorts and a t-shirt to show you a two million dollar house, or I may show up in a full suit and tie. And it's really just being comfortable with myself, right? Like trying to figure out where it is that I fit in. And so I don't focus on the dollars. I don't focus on how much somebody's going to buy a house for. And they say, Oh, I'm pre-qualified for $4 million or whatever it is. Like that does not matter to me if it's the experience overall that goes into it for me um, and how I kind of put that together. So some of the nuances there that come with that, with knowing that, all right, this is going to be a good wine cellar or theater room or anything like that. It's something to where, you know, that's not necessarily as important as let me just make sure this client has a great experience and the rest of it's going to fall into place. Yeah. And it's not much different than a, you know, two bedroom, one bath starter house for somebody like, if a bathroom sucks, you can see that on the front end. And I think that a lot of times people get so caught up again and like, okay, this house is $2 million, for instance, right? Okay, that's great. So they're so excited that they're going to sell that $2 million house that they overlook the common sense stuff of like, hey, they didn't put two sinks in this bathroom, even though you love it, like we need to put two sinks, there needs to be two sinks or whatever it is. And I think not being afraid to say, this is not the one we, we need to move on and, mm. and truly doing our job and guiding clients into making good decisions. Something that I talked about in the last podcast, and you may do this too. When I sell a house to anybody, I, I don't care what price range it's in. My immediate thought process is if they call me next week to resell this house, is it going to be a possibility, mm-hmm. right? Like, am I going to be able to put this house back on the market and make it a marketable product? Because it happens, right? Like that's the easiest way to get bitten in the ass is that you just push something on somebody that you know, isn't right. And then they go, Oh, my job just transferred me. I'm so sorry. I got to move and sell this house again. Yeah. Then you look like the real fool. Cause it's not possible. Right. But is it a challenge too? Because you're going to have some people that are wanting you to list a house and, and maybe a, a newer agent's going to be fired up that they've got this $2 million listing at this point. She said the bathroom may suck. And, and you going into this $2 million house that has a crappy bathroom to say, hey man, you got to change this, this, and this, or we're just not selling this dang thing. Right. But <clears throat> but the price of the house shouldn't eliminate common sense, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're dealing with the luxury client, one of the biggest things I see when I go into houses and I learned this early on from luxury agents is like, all right, this house is $2 million. Why are there so many light bulbs missing? (laughs) And then what happens is now there's light bulb missing. Now what else is going on? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like, okay, this is a luxury product and it needs to be treated as if it is a luxury product because that's what those buyers are selling. It's not, they know they can afford the biggest house in East Memphis or Eads, but it's those smaller things that the luxury clients look for that matter to them. It's those details. And and like I tell people, 
it's not the luxury deals that are harder. The realtors make it harder because they're so tight to get that paycheck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same amount of paperwork. Yeah. It's just more zeros. It's still going to take 30 <laughs> days to close. You still got, it depends on an appraisal and an inspector and a bank loan sometimes and just dealing with clients that you're hoping don't flake out before you close. Yeah. So I think the agents make that process a lot tougher than the actual transaction is. Yeah. That's, that's good. I, I agree. I just want to add one more thing. And I know you have this from mm-hmm. us working together in the past, but I think it's important that you have a network of people that can assist in the process. Right. So if I've got, so if somebody's buying a luxury home, whatever price range we want to throw that in, wherever we want to start that number, they've worked hard to get there, right? Like there's very few people that just inherited a whole bunch of money or hit the lottery or whatever it is. Right. Like most of those people have worked hard, whether it be an athlete that's worked themselves to death to get mm-hmm. get where they are or a physician or business leader or whatever it is. But a lot of times they're just focused on their own industry, right? The same way we are. And so they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know a designer. I don't know where to buy furniture. I don't have a painter, you know, whatever it is, I, I want to remodel this bathroom. Right. And so I think having that network of support in there sure. is also really important. Yeah. That's that, so good. Yeah. That's very true. Uh, on, on the show, James, uh, we've talked about how um, there seems to be some sort of a shift that's going on in our mm-hmm. current market and residential real estate in Memphis and probably across the country as mm-hmm. well, just as things are slowing down. But I know there are sometimes certain segments of that market maybe are more impacted or less impacted. What kind of changes have you guys seen in that luxury space with the the shift that we've seen where we've gotten more time on market, more price corrections? Is that something to where you're seeing that translate into luxury as well? It is, but, you know, I look at things a lot different. For me, it's more of a correction. Um, and, and what I'm finding is there are more people that are moving to, they're moving into this city in droves and they have money. They're moving from the Dallas's and the LA's and the New York's and Chicago. So when they come here and it's like, this property is $2 million, their brain triggers, that's a deal because all they know is what that gets me in LA, what that gets me in Chicago, what that gets me in Philadelphia. So we, we are seeing an effect, but in the luxury space, it doesn't affect those clients as much. Mm-hmm. They may, in my opinion, become more strict on what they require and how they want the transaction to go because they know the market is favoring them. But I wouldn't say that they're slowing down on buying. Yeah. But Josh, I would assume probably over the last handful of years too, even though the market has operated at a crazy pace, they um, when you've got a house that's one and a half, two million dollars, like those were always going to have a little bit more time on market anyway, just because there's fewer buyers for it, right? Yes. Um, I think that James made a good point. I mean, you've got people moving here and, you know, in Memphis, we don't have a hundred thousand luxury properties, mm-hmm. you know, that are selling whatever number you want to put that at. We have a, a pretty minimal amount of those. Um, and so when you add in 15 or 20 people or families or whatever that looks like annually, that makes a huge difference on where the luxury market is. Right. So I, I mean, I remember when I first started, my very first listing was like $850,000 downtown on the river. And I was the most nervous soul that had ever lived. And, you know, there, nothing had been selling down there and it was completely crickets and quiet. And I thought, I 
like I am up the creek without a paddle, but I'm going to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to charge forward. Mm-hmm. And we ended up selling the house. It was a guy that was moving, um, had been in Chicago mm-hmm. and he and his wife were moving to Memphis and we sold it in about three weeks. And at the time, the average days on market were like 85 or 90 right. or something like that. And so it, that really immediately taught me that, and I had another client that had a really nice house that I got down the street from this, another listing. And he, he did a really good job at telling me that he used to be a car salesperson. And he <laughs> said, there's an ass for every seat. And I totally appreciated that because right. it's true, right? Like you, you may not want a yellow car with orange interior, but somebody does. And so when you're looking at those luxury houses, I think it's important that you say, it doesn't really matter what the days on market is. It doesn't really matter. It matters that you're putting in the best effort and that you find that person to sit in that seat. Right. Mm-hmm. James, it doesn't seem like there's really a, uh, a unified definition for what luxury is, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, where do we draw the line at? Where do we say that like, well, this is a luxury listing and this one's just, no, it's a nice house, but like right. it, it doesn't meet that threshold. Um, is, is there any, whether you, where you draw the line or some best practice say, this is kind of where we should mark that. Right. So, when I first started, that number was five hundred. Yeah, I would probably say it's about six fifty now. Yeah, uh, five hundred is. I mean, there are middle class houses and neighborhoods that are reaching that five hundred point. So you know, I look at it like once you get six fifty and above, you have to start doing things a little different. But even six fifty, it depends on where you are because six fifty in Carryville is different from six fifty in East Memphis. Yeah. Right. So it just it, it's all location, location, location. Again, the key to real estate and finding okay at six fifty, this is my clientele in this area, and at six fifty, this is what my clientele will look like in another area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Josh, pretty similar numbers that you see as well. It's something where not there's not something where I feel like man, we can just all agree on this number at least. Not not consistently anyways, right? Right. And I, I totally agree with James. I mean, eight, nine years ago, that 500 number was like, wow, this is a pretty impressive number in, in the Memphis market, at least. And yeah, I mean, I had a client that called me this past week. They have a beautiful house that I sold them a few years ago. We They paid a million one for it, something in that neighborhood. And their children have moved on and, and to college. And so they want to downsize. And um, he's like, you know, I think if we could buy something in the 400 range, that'd be great. And I was like, no, that's like, I a hundred percent know that's not going to work for you. That's right. not, you know, you're going to have right. to go probably 700 and above to get what you, what you're looking for kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to educate our consumers as well. Like Memphis is still a bargain, right. Comparatively right. to other cities, but it's not, it's not, free. It's, it's not where it was right. five years ago or right. four years ago. Even. Right. Yeah. Um, for, for the high-end listings, James, I'm curious, uh, the process when you're trying to market a home, this is a listing that you've acquired and you're trying to get your seller to the closing table mm-hmm. and change it to the next family. How different is that process being a listing agent on a home like this compared to your more standard, you know, middle-class family homes? Well, because you're always thinking about who's going to buy it. Mm-hmm. You're always thinking buyer. And and when you go into those houses, you have to already have your mental calculator going. What agents am I gonna do that I have relationship with that I need to pitch this house to? Like that process starts so early. Like I have a list now that that is three weeks away that I called Josh about two months ago. 
The process already have started and the house is not ready yet. But like you explained earlier, that's a client. He was here a year and he he's no longer here. Mm -hmm. So again, the real work starts because now I'm on the clock. Well, nobody wants my house. Why did you let me buy it? Mm. Right. So now as far as prepping the house, things that my client may have let slide, I'm like, hey, we have to take care of that. We we have to get the landscape. We have to get the pressure wash. Like I said earlier, the light bulbs. We gotta put the light bulbs in. <laughs> like that matters to someone. And it's just those small things. Of, and you're really protecting your client. You go into a financial advisor role. It's like, how do I protect your financing so you can get the most bang for your buck when we sell? Mm. That's good. There are a variety of pockets around the city where we see you know, most of your luxury real estate uh, housed in, in our region. Josh, are there, are there any unique traits that you see between homes and some of the various neighborhoods where we might, may find luxury listings compared to um, others where all right, when, when I know I've got a luxury listing here, this is going to require a different skill set or a different marketing tactic for me to try to get people in front of it. Absolutely. So um, like James was referring to a minute ago, if you've got a horse estate out in Eads, right, like your primary focus is probably not going to be on the sewer line, making sure it's in great shape before you put the house in the market. Whereas if you've got a 110-year-old house in Midtown that's a million-dollar house, you might want to head off some of the things that you know that can be wrong with those properties, like a sewer line that needs mm -hmm. replacement. Because what's worse than getting under contract and selling a house and being so excited and everybody's great, and then they do the inspections, it's like there's $5,000 worth of work that a buyer all of a sudden thinks is 100000 or or whatever it is. Sure. So, yeah, I think you've got to take what property you have and make sure that it makes sense and that everything's organized and correct and marketed to the correct people. Yeah, that's so good. When, when we're working with buyers, James, same thing. Are there um, different tactics that need to be used uh, to make sure that your, your luxury buyers are going to have a great experience compared to if you're having something different? Because like, there's fewer houses out there. It's a different price point, maybe different expectations. Are there different things you have to do when you're operating with buyers in that luxury space? No, I try to keep the same standard with everyone, and it just that makes life easier for me. You know, I again, I I pride myself on the luxury experience. So, you know, if you're buying a hundred thousand or you're buying three million, I try to stay in the middle because the facts are the facts. At the end of the day, it's paperwork and a, a closing, mm -hmm. right? And all the things in the middle, those are the things that make a deal either work or not. So I don't get too emotionally attached to the outcome and the stuff in the middle. You have a goal, let's cross the finish line. And that's just the approach that I take with all my clients from smaller end clients to the larger clients. Yeah. Josh, same thing I'm assuming on your end. Yes. I, I, it brought to mind a, a client that I had a few years ago. He was a referral from a really great client of mine and he and his uh, family had a house, a really small starter house that was mm. not in great shape. They had paid like $108,000 for it and wanted to sell it. And they were buying it for sale by owner that they were already under contract with. So I was not going to participate in that. Right. And mm. so I was like, Oh man, I, you know, you, you're like, this, this may not be worth my time, but I did it. Right? right. And I gave them the same level of service that somebody would get if they were buying a $10 million house. Right. I don't think we have one in Memphis yet, but it, it, it 
nothing was different, right? Like the, I did all the same stuff and put it together. Okay, my marketing scheme was a little different for the house. Mm. The market wasn't what it is now. Mm. Sold the house. They moved to the house that they bought. Again, I didn't participate in that because it was a for sale by owner. Totally out of it. They called me two years later. Mm. And I continued to invite them to all my events right. and send them stuff every year and do the same stuff I do with everybody else, right? right. Hadn't seen them, hadn't talked to them. They called me a couple of years later and they said, hey, we need to make some real estate changes. Can you help us? And right. I said, sure, I'd love to. So I go over and meet with them at the house they had bought. Mm. They wanted to sell that house. It was about a $350,000 house in Germantown. The father, the, the grandfather of, of, the, of this gentleman, the father of this gentleman, who was the grandfather of the family, had inherited a significant sum of money, mm. and they wanted to buy a multi-generation household and put it together. So I sold them, I don't remember, a million and a half dollar house, something like that. Um, in East Memphis, sold the house in Germantown. Oh, and the father had a condo too that he wanted to sell. So I sold that for him. And then they've sent me countless referrals, right? Mm -hmm. I could have blown them off or referred them to somebody else from the get-go. But instead, it's like, let's put the effort in. Like you said, crossing the finish line. Let's figure out the goal, cross the finish line, and stop worrying about what the dollars look like in right. the middle. Yeah. Right. You guys have both now mentioned uh, referrals, and, and I've heard countless agents sit in this room, and, and we've talked about how they've got a referral-based business and all these things. Is it different working referrals in a luxury space where you've got people that are uh, you know, high-profile athletes or any number of business leaders, different things like that? Are referrals different in that space compared to others? I would probably say you get more referrals in this space because you're dealing with wealthier clients. They don't have the time because they're specialists in their industry. They don't have the time to vet three or four realtors. Mm -hmm. It's like, Josh, if you recommend this person to me, that's who I'll use. And if this person is not what I think they should be, I'll either come back to you or I'll fire them and we'll start over. But their thing is efficiency. And without efficiency, they couldn't perform at a high level to obtain the wealth that they have. Yeah. So I get more luxury referrals than I would pro than I would the lower income homes. Yeah. Um, well, not surprisingly to me, but to let you know, yeah, because it's just a it's a smaller niche and it's clusters of people. You know, mm -hmm. if you get in the right cluster, you may get ten deals out of one person, like Josh just mentioned. Yeah, that's a good day. Um, so, <laughs> Josh, perhaps it's just my perception, but it does seem like there are significantly more luxury homes in our region than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and we're talking about developments in Spring Creek or other parts of Eads, several new neighborhoods in Germantown. There's a few pockets of East Memphis and Midtown that have had some really nice homes go up. And it makes me wonder, you know, is, is this a new thing that I'm seeing or have there always been this many high-end homes that maybe I didn't notice or is there a growth for buyers in this space? Um, no, you're, you're correct. There, there have not always been that many houses. I, I don't think that have met that sort of luxury definition. So it takes on a couple of different aspects for me and, and I could be totally wrong on, on any of this, by the way, just so we're on the same page. But my theory on it is, is as James referred to earlier, we have people that are new to Memphis that are moving to the Memphis, we to Memphis for the first time in a really long time, right? Like there were years of the city just having a constant exit of people. And I don't right. think you see that quite as much anymore, um, but you do see a continual stream of new people. So there's demand, which allows builders to build those things. You've got affordability 
still, which is a really important thing, right? Which also brings people here. It's, right. you know, go take yourself over to Nashville and see what you can get for a million dollars or Dallas or St. Louis or any city really. And so you, you've got that going on. And then I always tell people that the price increases that we've continued to see over the years, I think it's really impressive because they allow for meaningful updates for people. So instead of the weekend warrior going to Lowe's and buying tile and trying to redo their own bathroom, because they knew if they put $20,000 into it, they would never get it out. So they're, they're trying to do cut corners and do it the halfway now, because the Memphis market has bolstered itself and continues to go up, people can make those changes that put their house into a luxury market. Right. Mm. So I think about central gardens in midtown, you know, seven, eight years ago, you were seeing really nice houses or what could be really nice houses sell for 300, 325, whatever it was. Now you'd be hard pressed to find one for 650, 700 in the heart of, of those neighborhoods because they've been able to transition as the market has transitioned. Well, a lot of those homes too were, were marketed as teardowns as Correct. ones that like, look, you could spend all the money you want on this one, but you'll never be able to actually get that out. So just go ahead and knock the dang thing down and build whatever you want. Right. So that, that's a unique trend too in, in our space. Occasionally, James, you know, we'll have a new agent that will land a buyer or a seller in a luxury space. And maybe it's their first time there. Uh, you know, man, I'd never sold anything that's remotely closest. I'm selling three and $400,000 houses. And I got one that cops out at 1.2, man, what the heck am I doing here? So, I mean, what advice do you give that agent that's just now dipping their toe into a space that they're unfamiliar with? Again, like I said earlier, don't put pressure <laughs> on yourself. It's just paperwork. Yeah. Don't, and don't count your money before you get it. Mm. <laughs> and, 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 and what I think it's easy for those agents to do as well, they hope I don't have a bad inspection report. Mm -hmm. They hope, you know, they're starting to hope their deal to the finish line without doing all the correct due diligence because they want that big paycheck. Mm -hmm. Do every deal as, is, as if it's your last deal and do every deal the same you would any mm -hmm. other deal. Don't don't change because the price point. And I like I tell people, also get a mentor that's in the luxury market because it's it's not as easy as people think, but it's not as hard as people think either. But it's it's a way that you have to conduct yourself and carry yourself that those clients have confidence in you when you speak. And a lot of it is educating on the smaller things. You know, like Josh said, well, I'm buying a 10-foot, 10,000 square foot house. We hadn't thought about furniture. Mm. We want to change this and that and that. We don't have a contractor. We're new to Memphis. So those things add value. And and again, like I tell people, my team, like slow down, breathe. It's going to be okay. It's just paperwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it seems like there is such an amazing community of agents that we have here. You said, you know, go get a mentor and whatnot. Right. I, I can't tell you how many incredibly successful, high-performing agents I, I've heard of. Yeah, this person just, you know, they took me to coffee, even though they had no business spending right. time with me. But right. uh, they were happy to answer my questions and take my phone calls and all the things that go with that. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's an incredibly common thing that mm -hmm. I hear all the time from people that, like, when I was starting out, they shouldn't have, but they did. Right. And look what that's done now. And we all and we all need that. Yeah. I had it. Yeah. You know, you you have to, but you have to stay humble that when th those people are not coming to find you, they mm -hmm. have something you need. 
Mm-hmm. So you have to humble yourself to make those people want to pour into you. Yeah. Well, and, and be willing to do it for the next one because exactly. cause there's another James coming, right? There you go. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as we're wrapping up here, guys, I, I, uh, I'd love to kind of put a bow on this, Josh. So how would you summarize our conversation for agents that are listening about the state of luxury real estate uh, in, in the Memphis area? Josh, we'll start with you. Um, I would say the most important factor to remember is that houses are going to continue to sell. You can look back into the recession in 07 and 08. Houses still sold, right? It wasn't like we had a zero count of homes that were mm-hmm. selling. People needed to relocate. There were family changes. Whatever it is, there's going to be people buying and selling real estate. So remaining optimistic and also not cutting corners and not getting lazy and not doing so much that just you, you're you not doing yourself a service or your clients, right? Like staying on top of your game. And if you get to the point where you're not there, like recognize that, make mm-hmm. some changes, shift with the market, but don't expect everything to just fall into your lap. Um, you know, I, I, I try very hard to stay in touch with all of my clients and to continue to uh, do events for them. I do a huge Christmas party every year, which I couldn't do during COVID obviously, mm-hmm. um, but that we'll do again this year. And it's so funny. One of my clients came one time and was like, this is better than any wedding I've ever been to. And so I think just thinking outside of the box, continuing to reinvent yourself, but also sticking to the basic principles. Like this is what has to be done. I get up every day and I do this and this is the service that I provide. And if I'm, if I'm not doing that anymore, then I need to make some changes. Yeah. James, same question to you. I mean, if we're trying to summarize this conversation about the luxury real estate market here in Memphis, I, I would say there's enough for everyone. Um, like Josh said, continue to work on your game. I think we'll see more and more luxury properties as Memphis continues to grow. And, you know, I travel a lot and I would tell people I put our properties against any city in the country. Um, we have beautiful homes. We have beautiful architecture, architect, architectural, uh, um, uh, floor plans. So I just feel like, you know, there's there's going to be a shift in the in our market where we're going to get those 6 and 7 million and 10 million dollar homes. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's coming. And Memphis is still very underdeveloped. We mm-hmm. have a, we have a lot of land. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be land forever. Mhm. Yeah, well, we keep saying it. it seems like uh, all the time I'll have someone on to and there's a shortage of inventory. There's a shortage of right. inventory. Eventually, you know, we're going to have to keep building because we, we got 6,000 new jobs coming with Blue Oval City right. and all kinds of things that right. are happening where there's growth in our city. So right. as we develop it. And if you take our land, we're one of the biggest cities in the country. Yeah. Which is under, we're a little underdeveloped. Yeah. That's good. That's that's super encouraging. Well, guys, I, I cannot say thank you enough for you two coming and, and sharing your knowledge about this topic that, that you're living in every single day. It's something where I feel like there is a huge benefit to people to just hear that, okay, no, it's it's another deal. Let, right. Let's work. It's just paperwork, as James Harvey says. Uh, so, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And guys, that does it for this episode of Key Exchanges in the 901. Uh, if you haven't already, please make sure that you've subscribed to the show on whatever your podcast app of choice is. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, pretty much all of them. If you love the show, it would help us out a ton if you'd leave us a review once you get there. 
As always, we'll have all of our guests, all of our sponsors' contact information in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me uh, about the show or something homeowners insurance related for you or your clients, you can always email me at dwilliams at shoemakerins.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to catch up with you on the next episode of Key Exchanges in the 901.